347. That's on page 890 of the Pew Bibles. If you have one of the Bibles right in front of you, but otherwise it's John 5, 30 through 47. This is part of our continuing series through the Gospel of John. We started with John 1.1 and we're going to keep going to the end, verse by verse. That's the way God has written Scripture, so that's the way we're going to, to go through it. And before we approach God's Word, let's, let's go to Him in prayer once again. Heavenly Father, we're here this morning as, as your assembled church and we are seeking you. Our, our prayer is to you. Our, our eyes look to you. And we look to your word. Father, we ask for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. We want to understand this word. We want to understand this passage. And we want to apply it to our own lives. So show us the meaning and show us how to live it out. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It used to be that that cars had multiple belts that ran accessories. Uh, These accessories that are attached to to the engine in different places, but modern engines, modern cars, if you look under the hood, only have one belt. It's called the serpentine belt. And it gets its name because it makes its way around all the different pulleys and and, and, in an alternating back and forth pattern and kind of winds itself around all these things. Now, everything that runs off of a belt is run by this one belt, the serpentine belt. So this means your air conditioner, your alternator, your water pump, um, oftentimes the power steering. And really, if you lose this one belt, the car is rendered undrivable. You you really can't get very far without the serpentine belt. Now replacing this one belt really isn't all that difficult if you have a serpentine belt diagram. The diagram is there to show you exactly where, on what side of each pulley, and there could be five, six, seven, eight pulleys underneath the hood. The diagram makes it easy to install. If you don't have the diagram, it's a nightmare. If you don't have this diagram and, you do, and the belt wasn't there and you have, just have to put it on, you can very, very easily get confused and make a mistake. Some manufacturers put a helpful diagram on a sticker and they conveniently locate it right under the hood. Others do not. The diagram makes all the difference. In John chapter 5, 30 through 47, God has given us a diagram of a hard heart. He shows us the inner workings of a hard heart. He doesn't want us to get confused about what a hard heart looks like. And here it is. This is what a hard heart looks like. A hard heart refuses to come to Jesus. That's that's the big picture here. If we had to put one sentence, one phrase on this passage, it would be a hard heart refuses to come to Jesus. Now we're going to look through this passage. We're going to see this diagram. It has three key components. And then we're going to make some application. So here's John 5, 30 through 47. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. He has, excuse me, his voice you have not, never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Verse 30 says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just because I seek not only not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now this, this beginning verse that starts here, and if you have a Bible with section headings, or chapter divisions. Mine says witnesses to Jesus, and the previous one says the authority of the Son. This verse is actually a helpful summary of the verses that came before it. So this verse goes very well with the authority of the Son. It says, I can do nothing on my own. That's very similar to I can do nothing than what, or I can only do what the Father, I see the Father doing. Uh, he talks about judgment. Last week we discussed that in detail about judgment. So we're not really going to comment too much about this verse. It seems to be a helpful summary that goes with the verses that came before it, as opposed to a lead-off verse that comes to what Jesus is going to say next. Verse 31 really starts this new section and remember, the chapter headings are not put there by God. Those are not inspired. <clears throat> Those are put in there by the translator. So we're not, we're not violating uh, God's will when we group one verse with a different heading. Uh, verse 31, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Okay, so Jesus now is, is going to talk about witnesses to his identity and how the Jewish leaders are willfully rejecting those witnesses. This is the diagram that God gives us. And this is how he presents the diagram of the hard heart. It's those who refuse to come to Jesus, even when faced with ample evidence and witnesses to the identity and the truth of who Jesus is. Jesus says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. And this does not mean that if Jesus was just speaking by himself. Everything he says wasn't true. 
everything Jesus says is true. Jesus is the Son of God. Every time he opens his mouth, it's truth. That's not what he's saying. Jesus can always be trusted. But look carefully. He says, if I alone bear witness about myself. He's saying, if I were just some guy and I were making these claims about being equal with the Father, then that would be untrue. Unless the Father bore witness. Unless the Father backed me up. Because Jesus has made himself equal to the Father. We looked at this last week. It's in the previous verses. I mean, this kind of claim can only be made and be accepted as true if the Father reciprocates and said, yes, this is the one whom I sent. Yes, he is the Son of God. I mean, if you and I were to go out and start making these claims, what good is that? Uh, they're, they're going to be untrue. The Father isn't going to validate us as the Son of God, but he does validate Jesus. So in verse 32, God the Father is the other. Verse 32 says, There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. So this is talking about God the Father, and I want to make sure we're clear on this. Uh, Jesus is not, uh, but by using the term witness, Jesus is not setting up this illustration of a um, courtroom example and I know that's where a lot of people go because it's well known if you've spent time in the Old Testament you know the testimony had to be accompanied by the witnesses of at least two witnesses to be valid and so people say oh well this is the courtroom setting Jesus is talking and, and proving with his witnesses no no he's not trying to meet some kind of expectation where he has to prove that he's telling the truth the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders are not some kind of uh, skeptical uh, group of jurors who are weighing the evidence and need Jesus to bring forth witnesses before they render a verdict. That's not what's happening. This is Jesus telling them, I'm not just some guy making wild claims. God the Father bears witness to who I am. And the Father is bringing forth a comprehensive testimony that consists of three individual parts. The witness of John the Baptist, the works that Jesus does, and the word of God. So that's, that's what's happening. The Son of God, if he truly is the Son of God, will be validated and affirmed by the Father. Or to put it another way, Jesus is saying, I am the Son of God, and God the Father, my Father, is validating and affirming me through this, this witness that consists of three parts. Okay? I just want to make sure I'm drawing a straight line here so that we don't get confused about what this is about. Verse 33, the first witness, John the Baptist, you sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. The, that phrase, you sent, this is referring back to, remember chapter 1, the, the leaders in Jerusalem sent out a delegation to find out who Jesus, or find out who John the Baptist was. John 1.19 says, and this is the testimony of John, when Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And, and what did John say? What was his answer? There is one coming after me who is greater than I am. 
He said, Behold the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist pointed to Jesus as the Son of God. This is the first witness that the Father is providing to affirm the identity of Jesus. And then in verse 34, Jesus says, Not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He's saying, My identity, my my divinity as the as the Son of God does not depend on what people say about me. I'm putting this forth to remind you that a prophet from God, the one who you acknowledge on the most part, for the most part, the one that you acknowledge as being a prophet from God, testified that I am the Lamb of God. And oh, by the way, I'm saying these things so that you may be saved. Once again, grace. Grace. These are the men that, remember back earlier in chapter 5, these are the men that want to kill Jesus. These are his enemies. And he's saying, I'm saying these things so that you may be saved. If even you, if you would turn, if you would believe, if you would accept my words, even you at this point could be saved. Verse 35, he returns to John the Baptist. He says, he was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. And it's that's true. It seems like many of the leaders at first were coming out to John. They were willing to listen to John. They thought that he was a prophet from God, and they were excited to see him. Matthew 3, 5 says, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to see him. Matthew tells us that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, some of them were coming out to receive John's baptism. So that John was received by the leadership for a while. Some of them still continue to believe that he was a prophet. So he's saying, look, for a while you went and rejoiced in his life. You, if or at least at first thought he was a prophet of God, and, and some of you still believe that, why don't you believe what he says? He's pointing out some inconsistencies in, in, their, in their belief system. He's saying, you think John's a prophet from God? He says, I am the Lamb of God. Why don't you believe him? If he's from God, are you disbelieving God? Well, the reason they're not believing is because they have a hard heart. This is part of the diagram. They refuse to come to Jesus. So that's the first witness. Number two, works. The second witness provided by the Father. Verse 36, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So it's not just John's testimony. It's not this, this recognized, valid prophet sent by God. John the Baptist, the one that Jesus called greatest among those born of women, it's not just him that's pointing to Jesus and saying, this is the Son of God. It's also the works that the Father has given Jesus to do. They also point to him as the Son of God. And we've seen those. Changing water to wine. The healing of the official son by, by simply a word over great distance. The, the, the raising of the paralyzed man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. And remember, these are just the ones that John has selected. These are the path stones that he's put into his gospel to lead people to belief. Jesus performed many other signs that are not recorded here. These works were, were prevalent. 
I mean, again, Jesus is pointing out the irrational nature of their unbelief. He's saying, what about the works? You've seen these works. Jesus was performing works left and right. There were so many works that they couldn't deny them. Uh, If if possible, the the leadership would have tried to explain it away. They would have tried to put their own spin on it or or put a lie out there and said, no, that doesn't really happen or that never really happened. Um, But there were just so many, they couldn't deny it. All they could do was attribute the works of Jesus to the power of Satan. Why? Because they had hard hearts. Because they refused to believe. This is part of the diagram. Now the third witness, the word of God, verses 37 and 38. And the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe in the one whom he has sent. He's telling them the father is not going to speak to you audibly. You've never heard his voice, you're not going to. You've never seen the Father. He's never revealed himself to you visibly. You've not seen him, and you're not going to. What he has done has given you his word. And although you read it, you're not abiding in it, or remaining in it, or dwelling in it, and it's not remaining or dwelling in you. I mean, the Jewish leaders had read the word of God. These were, keep in mind, these people that he's talking to, these leaders, they were uh, members of the Sanhedrin. Uh, So it consisted of Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes. Scribes were experts in the law of God. They often had the entire Pentateuch, the first uh, five books of the Bible, memorized. Uh, You could ask them for a verse, and they would tell you the verse, and then they'd tell you the verse that came before and the verse after it. I mean, these guys knew... The Word of God. They spent time. They would put us to shame in terms of sheer hours spent studying God's Word. So they knew it. But it wasn't dwelling in them. And Jesus tells them the scriptures that you've been pouring over, the ones that you've dedicated your life to looking at and reading and studying, they point to me. They point to me. And what he's saying is they're, they're of very little value to you. If you can spend all the time you want, but if you miss what they're talking about, it, you can read the Word of God over and over, but if you miss the fact that the Word of God is pointing to Jesus Christ, then they're, they're of just the same amount of value as if you had never read them. If you miss who they are pointing to, and they're pointing to Jesus Christ, The Old Testament is Jesus Christ concealed. The New Testament is Jesus Christ revealed. But they both point to Jesus Christ. The prophecies are fulfilled in Christ. The promises are kept in Christ. The types foreshadow Christ. The covenants find their unification and completeness in Christ. The law is perfectly kept by Christ. The sacrifices and ceremonies prefigure Christ and Christ's work of atonement. You can't get away from it. Jesus is telling them, you're reading God's word, but you're reading it wrong because you're missing who they point to and they point to me. 
verse 41, right after telling them that they refuse to come to him, Jesus says, I do not receive glory from people. Uh, This is his way of, of recognizing their hard heart, of recognizing their refusal to come to him. And his, his response is, that's okay. I'm not losing sleep over that. I'm not shedding tears over the fact that you're not coming to me. I'm not some worldly wannabe who is desperate for followers. My mission, my identity, my purpose does not depend on people giving me a five-star review. I don't receive glory from people. Verse 42, but I know, and what did John tell us at the end of chapter 2? Jesus knows what's in the man's heart. He says, but I know that you do not have love, the love of God within you. He's, he's saying you can call your Pharisee, yourself a Pharisee all day long. You can, you can study God's word all day. You can dress in the, in the trappings and external um, look of a pious Jew. But unless you come to me, you, you don't have the love of God within you. Now, they would have been enraged at hearing this. Remember, Pharisee means literally the separated ones. They found their identity. This is who I am. I am the, the elite, spiritual elite, the people closest to God. We're above all the regular people out there. We are the religious ones. We love God more than everyone. Jesus says, no, you don't have the love of God in you. This would have been... This would have been bringing them to a boiling point. And at the same time, they would have known in their own hearts that it was true. Their hearts were hard. They were refusing to come to Jesus. Verses 43 and 44, I've come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? So here's here's the sense of these two verses. Jesus is saying, I have come and I'm the only authorized sent one from God. And I come with ample witness testifying to my identity, witness from the Father. And yet you don't want to believe in me. You don't want to come to me. But if someone else comes without the Father's witness, if someone else comes and John the Baptist, the prophet, is not pointing to them, and if someone else comes who who does not perform miracles and signs, if someone else comes who the scriptures do not point to, that person, you're going to be all over. You're going to welcome that person if the person's uh, bold and loud and flashy and, and big and attracts followers and looks good to the world. Yeah, you're going to be all over him for your own benefit. You'd be quick to partner with somebody like that. But you won't receive me. And in fact, this was true. It's been uh, written at least uh, in one source that there were over 64 messiahs they came between Christ's ascension after the cross and 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed. During that time frame, about 40 years, 64 messiahs. And they all had varying levels of followership, people going after them. You're all about receiving glory from one another. You're not interested in God's glory. You want worldly glory, is what he's telling them. 
And then finally, verse 45, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you've set your on whom you've set your hope. So once again, he's pointing out some inconsistent beliefs and he draws their attention to Moses. Now Moses was um, among Old Testament figures and in historical Jewish figures, Moses was right at the top of the food chain. Okay? Moses was the apex predator. They, they, they all respected Moses. Nobody talked bad about Moses. So Jesus brings out Moses as an example and he says, if you believed him, then you'd believe me. Because he writes about me. How does that work? You, you say you believe Moses. Moses writes about me, but you say you don't believe in me. What, what's, show me how that works. Talk me through that. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? If they can't bring themselves to believe in the written word, how are they going to believe in the living word? It's not going to work. You can't say, I believe in the Bible, and at the same time say, I don't believe in Jesus. And conversely, you, you can't say, I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe in the Bible. Neither of those things work. This is a diagram of a hard heart. Let's summarize this passage. Jesus took, or excuse me, Jesus told the Jewish leaders that his claim to divinity and equality with the Father was established by the Father's witness. This witness consisted of the testimony of John the Baptist, the works that the Father had given him to accomplish, and the word of God. While Jesus said these things so that his hearers would believe, he knew that they did not have the love of God in them. And even in the presence of these witnesses to Jesus' identity, the Jewish leaders refused to believe in him or his words because they had hard hearts. That's what this passage is about. And, and what we have is a diagram of a hard heart. This is what God has given us so that we're able to recognize what a hard heart looks like. So here it is. Here's the diagram. This is not a rubber uh, serpentine belt that winds itself around the accessories of your car, like the air conditioner or the, or the alternator. Instead, this is Satan, the serpent who winds himself around the hearts of men and women, around the pulleys of emotions and desires. So let's take a closer look at this diagram. God has given it to us, and there are three specifics that Jesus points to. A hard heart, one, does not believe in the messenger that points to Christ. A hard heart does not believe in the works of God. And a hard heart does not believe in the word of of God. So we want to take this and apply it. We want to take what's written here, what he said originally to them, and pass it through the filter of, of Christ and the rest of Scripture and then bring it down today in the 21st century for application. So number one, a hard heart does not believe in the messenger that points to Christ. Now for the Jewish leaders, this was John the Baptist. He was one of those messengers. He was a prophet of God. He pointed people directly to Jesus, literally. As he walked by, he said, there he is. That's the Lamb of God. Today, we no longer have prophets walking around saying, thus says the Lord. We, we have no one today alive who's bringing us a new revelatory word from God. So the messenger that points to Christ today is the faithful church. 
It's the faithful church. The faithful church proclaims the gospel. The faithful church points people to Jesus Christ. So this diagram shows us that a hard heart does not believe the messenger that points to Christ. So that today, that means a hard heart does not believe the faithful church that brings the message of Christ. And the hard heart does this by, by not going to, to church at all. That's fairly simple. Or by going to a church that is capitulated to the world and has lost its prophetic voice. I hope we all know what that phrase means, prophetic voice. You can hear the word prophet in there. In the Old Testament, a prophet was all often called upon by God to bring a message to people. And they spoke as commanded by God, regardless of how that message was going to be received. Likewise today, churches that have a prophetic voice today boldly and fiercely proclaim the truth of God with all its authority, with all its sharp edges, regardless of how that message is going to be received. Churches that have lost their prophetic voice are churches that are uncomfortable with absolute truth, churches that uh, are concerned about being politically correct, are making sure they're, they're walking in step with the latest worldly ideology that's circulating on the, on the feeds, uh, social media feeds, and they certainly don't want to offend anyone. So churches that have lost their prophetic voice are not seeking God's glory, they're seeking to please the world and, and seeking to please people. And a church like that is a soft landing place for people who refuse to submit to the authority of Jesus, but who want to retain the, the appearance or the reputation of being close to God. So a hard heart does not believe in the messenger that points to Christ. Number two, a hard heart does not believe in the works of God. Now for the Jewish leaders, they had Jesus, once again, right in front of their eyes. This was not secondhand information. They didn't hear like a report of Jesus doing things. He was doing them in front of their faces. And they did not believe. And once again, we do not have Jesus in his incarnate ministry walking around performing miracles. The apostles are gone. Uh, we had one generation of apostles. They're not walking around performing signs and miracles. But we do have one of God's greatest signs, and that is creation. Creation. And scripture tells us that we are to look upon creation and know that there is a God. Romans 1, 19-20 says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So this tells us anyone should be able to wake up in the morning, look out the window, open their eyes, see creation, and say, oh, look at that. This didn't just happen. There must be some divine creator. There must be some an eternal, uncreated God that made all this. And we're all, all without excuse. So a hard heart does not believe that God created the world or that he created men and women or that he created anything, really. A hard heart will answer the where do we come from question with, with something else, something other than God. Um, a hard heart will attribute the existence of men and women to evolution. Now, not microevolution, we're not talking about the changes in the length of the beaks of finches over one or two generations. We're talking about macro 
evolution. One kind jumping to another kind, like a fish becoming a cat, or a lizard becoming a bird, or a, an ape becoming a man. A hard heart refuses to believe that God created Adam from the dust of the ground. A hard heart refuses to believe that he took a rib from Adam and created woman, and that he breathed the life into both of them. And if you're a believer here this morning and you profess to be a follower of Christ, I want to caution you against even toying with that secular, counterfeit, Darwinian evolution theory that the world puts forth. Because I've heard professing believers say something like, well, I believe in God, and in the same breath say, and I believe God used evolution to create people. In reply, I would direct us back to Genesis 1 and 2, that tells us that God did not use evolution. And as Romans says, that we just looked at, ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so not in the things that have evolved over millions and millions of years, but in the things that have been created, the things that have been made, we need to keep in mind Darwinian evolution is a counterfeit lie that stands opposed to God's truth and to reality. But we also have the creation of born-again believers. Not only do we just look outside and look at creation and know that there is a God, we can see God's power today in every person that has been born again. That is also a spiritual creation. People that have been born again, they've been brought from death to life spiritually. That's God at work. The hard heart cannot see the things of God, so they deny the existence that there is a people of God. They deny that God has called out a people for himself from all walks of life, from every background, from every continent, and from every century. So a hard heart does not believe in the power of God to create the world and everything in it. It also does not believe in the power of God to create new spiritual life and a people for himself set apart. And then finally, we've got messenger works. The last one is a hard heart does not believe in the word of God. And this is very similar to what was being experienced here by these leaders. They simply refuse to believe the Word of God. The, the, now the difference is, in, in this example, they spent time reading it and reading it and reading it. They just never got it. They never saw what it was pointing to or who it was pointing to. Today, generally, the hard heart uh, doesn't spend time reading and reading and reading the Bible. Uh, the hard heart usually just dismisses it and says, you know what, that's... I don't really see how that's relevant to my life. Um, that's just a big, confusing, hard-to-understand book, and I don't see why I should spend time reading it. And so they dismiss the Word of God. Or they do read it, but they view it as a, as a kind of like a moral guide. Um, uh, yeah, that's interesting, and, and I can see some good things here and there. Or, that's kind of a really interesting story, David and Goliath. Yeah, that's a good one to tell the kids, but there's no... Um, understanding uh, spiritually of the Word of God. So what we have here is a diagram of the hard heart. It will not listen to the church, it will not accept God's creative works, and it does not accept the Word of God. Now, why do you think that God saw fit to include in the Gospel of John a diagram of a hard heart? Why does he give us 
this diagram? Why does God want us to look closely at what unbelief looks like? If you've never been pheasant hunting, let's say this, let's say you've never been pheasant hunting before, okay? Never in your life. But a friend or who's an experienced guide asks you to come along with him, and he says, we're going pheasant hunting. And so you grab all your gear and everything you need, and now you're, you're standing on the edge of the field, and before you head out to the field, he tells you this. He says, now remember, it, it's illegal to harvest the female pheasants. Don't shoot the females. You can only shoot the males. Now how confident would you be about going out into the field and, and aiming your weapon in the right direction? Probably not very confident at all. Now, what if they said, okay, uh, and you walk a little further and, and a male flies in front of you and the guide says, there, that's a male. You see that long ring tail and you see his head that's all green with the red wattle and the white ring around his neck? That's a male. But remember, don't shoot the females. That's a little better. Uh, okay, now I know what a male looks like. Uh, now I, but... I don't really know what the difference is between a male and a female. How closely are they? Am I going to make a mistake or not? But if you're walking through the field and a male pheasant and a female pheasant slowly walk in front of you and the guide says, see, there's the male pheasant, the one with the green head, red wattle, white ring, long striped tail, and that's a female the one without all that head coloring and the one covered with dull brown feathers, that one. Now, don't shoot the female. Now how confident are you? Pretty confident. That makes all the difference, doesn't it? Now we know where to aim. Now we know the direction to point and shoot. God's word shows us many examples of genuine belief. But he also wants us to know what unbelief looks like, so that we can aim our life and our Christian walk in the right direction. He wants to make it crystal clear. He wants to show us, don't shoot the female. Don't, don't head in that direction. Don't go towards unbelief. Instead, go this way. Aim your life over here. And because we have this diagram, what God has commanded us and what he expects from us is, has been made crystal clear. Uh, we can now read and look at this diagram that he's helpfully provided right under the hood for us, and we can say, all right, not that, but that. So instead of not listening to the messenger that points to Jesus, we are to listen to the faithful church as she proclaims and points to Jesus. And so for unbelievers... That means if you want to find Jesus, if you want to get right with God, then you need to go to a faithful church. You need to go to a faithful church, not the internet. Please don't go to the internet. Do not go to the internet if you want to find God. Not a talk show on TV. Not Christian radio. Not a yoga class. Not ancient philosophers. Not some world religion and not a church that has lost its prophetic voice. Instead, a faithful, Bible-believing, Bible-preaching, Christ-exalting, God-honoring church. That's where you're going to
to get right with God. That's where you're going to hear the message. Let's not make this more difficult than it is. If you need food, you go to the grocery store where they have food. If you need gas, you go to the gas station where they have gas. If you want to get right with God, you go to a faithful church. And for believers, not only are we to listen to the faithful church, unless, I mean, unless providentially hindered, we are to be here sitting under the authoritative proclamation of God's word. We are to be pursuing active discipleship amongst one another. We are to be serving with one another. another. But we're also called to be the faithful church. As people come to a faithful Bible-believing church, we are to be the ones proclaiming. Each one of us, you, me, all of us. So when someone comes here, they're looking for God. They're looking for the, the, how to get right with God. We need to point them to Jesus Christ. And this is why in, right outside these doors, that green corner is called the gospel area. You can take someone there and walk them through the gospel. There is no sweeter feeling than talking to someone and explaining to someone how to have their sins forgiven. There is nothing like the feeling, if you ever want to have the feeling of knowing that you are directly bullseye in the center of God's will, it's when you're explaining the gospel to someone. It's when you're telling someone about Christ. We are to be doing that when someone comes looking for God. So we are to be the faithful church and we're listening to the faithful church. Number two, we are to believe in the works of God. Creation, that's a big one. That's a big one. The creation of the universe, the world, the plants, and the animals, but also creation of male and female, the creation and institution of marriage, and the family unit, a mother, a father, children. And we are to reject all counterfeits, lives, and evil imitations. I mean, do you watch the news at all? (laughs) That giant rushing sound is our culture pouring into the depths of evil like water over Niagara Falls. I, I don't think we have to spend much time on the, talking about how bad the world is. It's just self-evident. I, we were coming out of a, a Presbytery meeting the other day, and a, a group of us were going to our cars, and we were commiserating on how bad the world is. And Someone said, well, Christ is coming back, and, and it'll all be good then. And, and somebody said, I hope he comes back on the ride home. It was that bad. They, they, just, they just can't stand to be in the world any longer. We are followers of Christ. And we are to stand firm and believe upon the truth of God that he has given us. That means holding fast to creation, to marriage, to male and female, to family, and every other black and white, right and wrong issue that the Bible presents to us. We are the church. This is where we stand, is firm on these things. The diagram of a hard heart shows us where to aim our life. Not, don't shoot the females. Here. Point in this direction. And then finally, the Word of God. We are to believe in the Word of God. There are a few things that sadden me more than when I hear of a professing believer saying they no longer believe in something the Bible teaches. And I've heard it. I've heard it directly from the mouth of someone. I've, I've heard it through their writings. Uh, Christians, sometimes ordained people, that, that come out and say, yeah, I used to believe this, but I no longer believe that anymore because of X, Y, Z, and they, they fall in step with the world. That is just tragic. And I think most of us are probably here this morning saying, well, that's never going to happen to me. I'm not going to disbelieve the Bible. And I think that's true. 
I think it, it would be very strange indeed if a spiritually mature Christian suddenly stopped believing the Bible. In fact, if you, if you stop believing the Bible, you're not a spiritually mature Christian, so that, that doesn't work. But what is more likely to happen is that we are to come under some kind of pressure to live in such a way or to do something that contradicts what we believe about what the Bible teaches. That's much more likely to happen. When your employer mandates something that is a clear violation of Scripture, when they, when they ask you to sign something, when they present the HR document to you and you have to either sign it or you lose your job, are we willing to lose our job? Are we willing to walk out? Or would we go along with it and ask God to forgive us and somehow kind of decide that it's a gray area anyway? Or what about when some law is passed and you have to adjust the way you run your business or, 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 or how you hire people? Some new law that violates your conscience and as according to scripture, and I, we have to ask the question, could you walk away from it? Could you walk away from something you've built, something you've sacrificed for for so many years? What if something required of us by scripture is made illegal. Are we willing to break the law and accept the consequences and go and live according to Scripture? Are we going to obey God or man? See, see, the church is very quick to respond with a, a chorus of hearty amens when we hear the words, believe the Bible, stand in the Bible. But it gets strangely silent when we're called to Say, wait a minute, but what if it actually cost you something? And then we're, we get quiet and we're thinking in our heads, okay, what would I do in that situation? When there's a high price to be paid, not, not just makes your life uncomfortable or inconvenient. Not, 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 I don't mean I'm going to have to make some, some adjustments. I mean lose your life. I mean have your life destroyed. Will we follow Christ? How far are we willing to go in order to follow Christ? Just remember this. Jesus was willing to go all the way to the cross for you. It didn't cost him his business or his house or his friends or his retirement. It cost him his life. He died so that we may live. And he calls us to go all the way for him. Jesus has called us to a new life for life, no matter what the cost. Jesus has called us to eternal life, but he never said it would be an easy life. He's called us to a good life, to a joyful life, but not an easy life. No matter what the cost and so he shows us, in his word, he shows us the good and the bad. He shows us truth, and he shows us what falsehood looks like. He shows us what genuine belief looks like, and he gives us a diagram of a hard heart. He shows us this so that it will be crystal clear to us how we should live, where we should aim our, the direction of our life, and how we are to walk. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give us this 
diagram of the hard heart, we don't enjoy spending time uh, discussing what unbelief looks like, but we know that it's in your word and it's necessary to understand. And we know that even within this passage, embedded within these words, you say that it is so that we will be saved. It's so that we will clearly see how to follow you. So Father, that is our prayer, that you would imprint upon our hearts the direction that you want us to walk, following Christ regardless of the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.